0: Details.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Autocar Podcast My Week in Cars, the eight week series, on episode 16 with Matt Pryor, that's me, and Steve Cropley, that's him. Hello, Steve. Hello, Matthew. And because this is a Christmas special, we have a Christmas special guest, television's James May. Hello, James. Hello. So James presents... How am I a Christmas special guest? Well, you're, not, well, you're, a, you're a special guest in this Christmas and, edition. And it, I mean, you're okay. not looking particularly festive. I was going to say, say I'm, but not, but
2: I'm not feeling particularly Santa Claus. moment. No, but you
1: uh, you present the Grand Tour on Amazon. Yes. And on there, you also uh, present travel documentaries, Our Man in Italy and Japan so far. Yes. More to come? Yes. Uh, you present presented programs on food, wine, toys, science and engineering, and you've written about most of those too. I saw a cookbook by you just the other day. And your latest book, Carbolic's... Not yes, spelt as rudely as it sounds. No, is on uh, sale now.
2: It is, and I meant to bring you a copy, and I've left it on the kitchen table.
1: Well, we'll talk about it later. Okay. There's a fiat panda on the cover, which is encouraging.
2: There is a fiat panda <laughs> on the cover.
1: There's yeah. a
3: fiat panda that, that uh, James arrived <laughs> in.
1: There. Oh, there's downstairs. Uh, so James was a Top Gear presenter from the turn of the century until 2015, and well, like a lot says. of us, <laughs> <laughs> and like a lot of us would, uh, if we were lucky enough to have a career as successful as his, he owns a pub and makes gin. And in mm. his bunker at home, I understand he works on motorbikes. And although he dislikes the phrase "resto mods" bicycles, and he's a motoring journalist. Is that how you'd still describe yourself, first and foremost? To
2: be honest, no. I think that I'd, I would be—that would be very disingenuous of me to call myself a motoring journalist. I was, when I look back on it, I think I was actually a reasonably serious one in mm. the old days. But these days, because our TV show really turned into a car-themed sitcom, I slightly lost touch. And I don't really do any mainstream writing about cars anymore. Um, You know, very occasionally I do something for the Sunday Times or, or something like that. But I'm not a regular motor noter, as I think you used to call them, muttering rotter, muttering rotters. Yeah. So no, not anymore. Not anymore. I'm not sure what I am. these days apart from very old but in the uh well i'm gonna go back further than
1: the turn of the century if that's okay in the early 1990s you were a staffer at autocar i was until
2: very suddenly (laughs) you weren't it was quite sudden that i wasn't yes um i had to walk home that was the biggest hurt of all i think is how long had i been there for it was almost exactly two years you got used to having interesting cars to drive all the time there was always a car i didn't live that far away but um once I'd been dismissed, I had to walk home. I yeah,
3: mean, I, it's a, I was here. I was here at the same time as that. I, I wasn't primarily involved in motorcar then, but it, <clears throat> I remember the shock of it all because it, what you um, were dismissed for was uh, seems so slight to me now. Um, perhaps it was wasn't a slight at the time. I don't know. What do you I, reckon?
2: Well, I don't know really. I think, to some extent, it was. I, I probably embarrassed somebody because the advertising department was a bit hurt about it because they didn't know. Yeah. And they thought it was slightly taking the piss and therefore insulting their clients and so yeah. on. So, um, but obviously, I didn't think ahead that much when no. I was doing it. I was just a bit <laughs> bored, so I was mucking about. Well, it was a
3: great thing to do. It was really clever. I mean, yeah. for those who don't know, it was it, it was... Uh, the drop caps, the big uh, capital letters that start off paragraphs in the road test yearbook, um, were arranged to to have their own message. And the message was, in effect, you think this is a good thing to do, actually, it's a pain in the ass.
2: Yes, that was the gist and, of it. And
3: uh, it didn't, that was pretty well aligned with the way we were all thinking.
2: Uh, was it? I should think so, no, yeah. Nobody said that at the time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, the thing is, the, the road test yearbook is a, a worthy document, but it is. Um, you know, it's a it's a fairly fat chore at the end of any year, and
2: uh... it was a lot of words, and it was a lot of drop caps to doctor because yeah. um, you know very occasionally there would be a story that began with the right letter. The drop caps used to be massive then because this was very much the design vogue in the '90s. You'd have a big red drop cap and a shadow, you know, because we we had desktop publishing, we had Quark, and you could do these things, and so people did. It was a bit like a power tool; you tend to overuse it. You know. <laughs> Um, But if you plot the whole thing out, as I did, you know, so I knew which story had to begin with which letter, I wasn't getting the stories in in the right order, they were just coming in from here, there, and everywhere, in drips and draps. So I had to keep a chart and tick them (laughs) off, and I mean, to be honest, other people, they won't mind me saying now, were in on it, and would consult my chart and make sure they started their story with the right (laughs) letter to save me the bother of rewriting the first paragraph. And
3: wasn't the problem that this got in the sun or something?
2: That wasn't- It got in the sun. I think one of the other problems was quite a few, quite a few readers spotted it and then wrote in thinking they'd won a prize uh, and were very disappointed that there wasn't (laughs) anything. Uh, So yes, it was probably all very awkward, but hey. But it turned out all right, didn't it? Ultimately, in the short term, it didn't. I was- How did that proceed?
3: How did you get, how did you get discovered? How did they just, because the thing we all know is that people can either do TV or they can't and it and you can't predict who's going to be able to
2: yeah and I'm not sure I can or could but um, how did it go well I, after Autocar I did a bit of freelancing stuff um, I did some freelance production work I wasn't I hadn't really done any writing at this point and then I eventually ended up working on the launch of complete car as effectively the production editor I suppose And in a few bored moments, I had a go at writing down some of my thoughts on cars. Um, I effectively wrote three columns. They were about eight or 900 words, you know, column length. And I sent them off to your old mate, Gavin Green, who was also producing Car Week at the time, which was your rival briefly. And he um, asked me in for an interview. And we had a nice old chat outside that pub up in near Bowling Green Lane. What was it? The Betsy Trotwood. Did you ever go there? No.
3: It sounds all right
2: there. All right. I <laughs> <laughs> haven't been for a long time. Um, and then I I had to go away somewhere, something like a mate's wedding. And when I got back to my flat, there was a, a letter from Gavin saying, um, thanks very much for coming to see me, but we don't really have enough to offer you to you know, warrant a job. And I think that would be wrong to say you should freelance for us as well, because, you know, I appreciate that it's difficult and you wouldn't have enough work and there's an end on it. But there was also a message on the answering machine from Gav going, oh, Mike, Mike, mate, you come and meet me in the pub, you know? So I went down the road, Richmond as he was then and met him in the pub and he gave me a column on car magazine, which was, you know, he said, you can go away and think about it for a week. And I said, no, no, I'll do it. <laughs> Cause that, that felt like a job yeah. at the time, but I don't know. I mean, I do owe him something because I don't know why he gave me a column of all the people he could have given a column to on the basis of three things that I'd written. And I remember I used those three up for the first three months, and then it got to the point where I had to think of something else, and I had this massive panic. And it used to take me a week to write a column. Yeah. I found the process so painful. Well, I still do, which is why I avoid it, to be honest. But, <laughs> but I mean,
3: people, it is, a, it is a, you know, it's a certain ability. Not everybody can do it, so you, he obviously saw you could because he wrote him himself didn't he so
2: he did and still does and um, still does so yeah so then so i did that and then driven was started on channel 4 and the bloke who was given the job of assembling people to do that or screen testing to people to do that happened to read my column in Car Magazine and quite liked it. So he rang me up and I went and did a screen test and there was a bit of mucking about. And I got that job and I did it for one season but then I was effectively fired like I have been from everything else <laughs> because they, they really wanted a woman on the show and they couldn't get rid of Jason Barlow or Mike Brewer because, well, Mike Brewer had another series on Channel 4 so that would have been awkward and Jason Barlow was being groomed for something bigger so basically that was the end of me. And then I got the phone call from Top Gear in it's Pebble Mill days and went to work for them for a season and then got fired from that as well.
3: (laughs) Who who, who did you work with the first
2: time? On Top Top Gear? Gear. Uh, Quentin and Tiff, Vicky Butler Henderson, and um, Chris... um, Oh, motorbike man. No, uh, well, sorry, yes, he was there as well.
1: Oh, yeah, Hosses? never mind. Anyway, no.
2: Him. Yes. Move on, it'll come to me. It'll come to me as well. <laughs> yeah. Steve Berry. Steve, Steve Berry, oh, that's, that's him. him. No, yeah. there was also um, Chris, Chris' younger brother of, of, oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Three Ben. Coogan. Coogan. <laughs> right. Chris okay. Coogan, who's Steve oh, Coogan's really? younger brother. No, is oh, he? Of, of course. Because he was there for a bit, wow, then, right, he, Yeah. then okay. they fell out with him as well. And then they right. wanted to do a big Top Gear shake-up, um, and I got the bullet. So,
3: Amazing to get brought back, though.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it, the turn of events was quite strange. As a result of appearing on Top Gear, I'd been fired from Car Magazine as well by <laughs> Rob Monroe Hall because he said, you've appeared on Top Gear. Can I, can I say this on this? Yeah, come can, yeah go and, for it. And he said, that, that puts you firmly in the box-marked cunt, so you'll have to... Okay. So, But they let me start writing for Top Gear Magazine. And then when I got fired from Top Gear the programme, they still let me write for the magazine. So I did that for a bit. And then Wilman and Clarkson started working on a new version of Top Gear, which I think used some elements of Driven as well, because we did one yeah. or two pioneering things like the, the news yeah. section and the three header test. I, this I worked you? at Channel 4, website, the four car website at the time, and Driven
1: and the new Top Gear came pretty much the same weekend. I think, no, or, they, or somebody at Driven got wind of what the new top gear was like, and they very hastily revamped Driven, and it was shite. <laughs> and they, but, they, but previous to that, the format was not dissimilar. No. Yeah. God damn. And
2: Driven so got then, canned pretty quickly. So your
3: bank manager must have you know, been a bit concerned all, through all this, was he? Or?
2: Yes, probably. So was my mother. <laughs> um, because, yes, to her, I'm just still a boy, I suppose. But she said, why did you do that? You had a good job. No, know that sort of attitude from yeah, people yeah. who grew up during the war or whatever <laughs> i don't there's a little bit to that story that i haven't got quite right which is that i went for a screen test to do the new top gear um but they didn't like me so i was rejected and they they took on um oh, i've got to remember another name now no i know the fellow velvet jackets yeah uh it uh, went on to do that quite successful car website for a bit he was yeah. a he was a Dealer, he's okay. got a name of somebody, he's Jason, Jason Dawes, Dawes. Jason Dawn, that's there you it. go. Yes. Oh yes, yes. So he was on season one, the other two still go on about this, if I turned up late for Top Gear because <laughs> I missed the first season, but in fact he didn't really get on with it, so they got rid of him, and they really couldn't find anybody else, and they eventually took me in, I, I think out of desperation. Was, that, Will, well, was
3: Andy Willman the, the behind it all then?
2: Yeah, Andy Wilman was behind it, but senior people at the BBC had a say in.
3: Because Wilman's a supporter uh, of yours, isn't he? He always liked the.
2: I think so, the way yes. the three of you worked I mean, together. Sometimes you wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember the sort of look of glee on his face when I crashed the Evo into the wall. I was thinking, well, that's not very nice, is it? But of course, he was <laughs> thinking of the television programme, and he's quite right too, because it was <laughs> it was a good moment. It made him, yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, so, I mean, that's, that's how it all happened. And it is a little bit convoluted. And that's where I ended up, and here I am.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh,
1: hello. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Evo crash, we should say, is in the latest Scandy flick that's film. That's in the Scandy flick film. But yes. you're
2: recovered and fine, and it was a while back. And Yeah, yeah, it so. was in March. Yeah. So um, nobody found out about it for a long time. We managed to keep it secret, which is very unusual for us. Almost everything we do, especially if it involves... Uh, you know somebody breaking something it gets out but it didn't until the preview versions of the show were released to the press and then they all said oh James has smashed up this Evo as if it had happened the previous week but it was already five or six months ago uh-huh. by that point so yeah I was fine within a day or two
1: yeah I'm I'm also fascinated as you I imagine will be by that by the base the submarine pen or whatever it was that it have you filmed stuff
2: yes Yes. What was it? What I, it? I, well, I still don't really know because the bit where we would drive around and discover it, I'd already been carted <laughs> off at no. that point. So, um, but there were some, some sort of manoeuvres on going, going uh, some manoeuvres going on down in the tunnels and things. Mm. And but all the soldiers seemed to be Dutch, as far as I could make out. And I don't know, unless they'd invaded and nobody had said anything. <laughs> nobody had no, done anything. No. had heard
3: about Brexit yeah.
2: Possibly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what turned you on to engineering
1: and mechanics
2: and stuff? could you studied music. I did. Um, I suppose the mechanics thing goes back to childhood, bicycles, mending toy trains, things I still do, to be honest. Mm. Um, but it is that. It's very much it's mechanics rather than true engineering. I mean, I can operate a lathe and I can... Use a micrometer and things like that, but but it's basically metalwork and mechanics. Not uh, there's no formal study. What sort of music? Well, I trained classically. Um, Piano, or actually harpsichord. Eventually oh, really? at university, yes, but I never, I didn't really pursue that because it's a cussed instrument. It's it's like a sort of an old Italian sports car of keyboard instruments. You're constantly taking it to bits and mending it rather than playing it. Um, I do still have a piano, and I still play it a bit, but I'm not. I don't do enough practice like most people.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very interesting, Gosh. It's a. It's not an association we make, but then the the aforementioned Gavin Green was a marine biologist, I believe. So
2: yes, he was, wasn't the, he? Yeah. That, and Then Mr. Pryor an engineer,
3: that. indeed, mm. are yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not a very good one, which is why I write about them rather than actually doing it, but that's the Well, that's there's, the something, there's something to be said for writing about it, because one of the things engineering can't do very well is communicate, it seems to me. Mm. There's a, I, I, I think this is a British problem. You don't get it in Germany, I don't think you get it in America, but the the ability of the engineering, I hate using the word, but the engineering community in Britain to project itself and what it does in a, in an exciting and, and cool way is sadly lacking. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I know that's a
1: frustration of some engineers. I, I know. And, uh, because enge- yeah, engineer in Germany, you get engineer is part of your title. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I remember st- telling, Italy, yeah. telling college student mates of mine that I was going to study engineering and they go, what? So you can fix cars. Yeah. yeah fix yes, the washing exactly. machine. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: Exactly. I've actually stood up in front of groups of engineers occasionally to and said, "Look, we, you, you blokes, you know, we are the softest touch. You, mm. the, the, the journalists can be your best friend. They don't understand this, you know. They, they're kind yeah. of obsessed with secrecy. I think that's part of the problem. Mm. But, but you're right. You know, they, it's like I always say the same thing. You know, if Edmund Hillary had cl- climbed Mount Everest and not t- told anyone, it would have been a bit of a shame, wouldn't it?
2: <laughs> yes, indeed. I don't. I, I suppose." Another part of the problem is we've slightly abused the word engineer in Britain in the way we abuse words like craft and artisan these days. So, yeah, yeah, you can be, you know, they they will append the word engineer to something to make it sound a bit more serious, whereas what they're doing is is diluting the meaning of engineering, which is already pretty broad, let's be honest. It doesn't need to be any broader.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: How did your first TV programmes that weren't the car stuff come about?
2: Um, what was the first one?
1: Oh, was, I don't know. Yeah. What was the first one? <laughs> Would it been the toy? Would it been? Oh, it was a probably. Choice, do you think?
2: No, it was Oz and James. I think. Oh, okay. It was Oz and James drinking. <laughs> um, that was done by an independent production company. I didn't know Oz. I knew who he was, and mm. we, I used to watch him on the television and laugh at him saying fruit all the time. <laughs> and uh, the production company, they they wanted to do something on wine with Oz, and they said we want to choose someone for you to travel around with. And I don't know how they arrived at me. Mm. Um, and I didn't know anything about the subject. And it was a great job, to be honest, because it was Ozzy's job to be the expert. And it was just my job to sort of puncture his pomposity and ask the questions that any reasonable person would ask who was watching. And as a formula, that works really well. Um, from a professional point of view, it just meant drinking a lot of wine and being deliberately fatuous and bloody minded. <laughs> <But, laughs> It was great fun, we got three series out of it. sounds yeah, terrific. Mm. Do you know more about it now? Are you yes, an expert? A bit. I'm not an expert, no. I mean, it's such a fantastically complicated subject and Oz has devoted his whole life from the age of about 14, if I remember rightly, mm. to thinking about wine and talking about it. He's written all these thick books. I'm holding my fingers up to indicate a book about four inches thick. And he comes out with one of those at least once a year. Yeah. And he, he really does know his stuff. Amazing. Still in action, I guess. yeah very much so, and still very difficult to get hold of. I sent him a text the other day to try and meet up for a beer, but he turns his phone on I think once every three weeks and has a look at what's happened, and then turns it off again. So, yes, I'll get hold of him eventually.
3: The programme, I, it's not that old, I don't think, but it, but I reacted so really well to. Was it? Was one where you were you just took an electric train to pieces and put it back together? Mm. I think. And the thing that I remember best about it, apart from the fact that I thought it was really great, because I always wanted to and didn't, but was the role of the cup of tea. There yes. was a cup of tea that, uh, it, it, I mean, you're drinking one now. It, it's I, had a, a,
2: I had a cup of tea Wrangler in that that programme. It was the Reassembler. Actually, somebody else took the things apart. Did they? Yeah, and I, well, not the train set, because that was my own, and I, I did take that apart, and I... Taking things like that to bits so many times I can almost do it blindfold like a squaddie with a rifle. But other things like the food mixer, we got them from museums and and from collectors and they would take them apart and and knoll them as it's called, you know, laying all the bits out so Uh, it looked beautiful. Uh, And then I'd have to work out how to put it together. And it was a, we were slightly nervous about the idea because it's obviously very, very farty bloke in shed sort of TV and nothing really happens apart from that. I just ramble on about tools and related nonsense and, and put a food mixer. But that was a thing.
3: I can remember thinking, I shouldn't, I shouldn't find this as entertaining as I do, <laughs> but, but because it's just a bloke, you know, a bloke I know, but a bloke, um, and yet it was riveting. And I watched right to the end and Angela thought I was mad, but there you
2: are. <laughs> yes. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't the one that was going to turn me into a sex symbol with the ladies, as they used to say. No, I think it was. There were a lot of blokes watching it by themselves. <laughs> there is something but, quite compelling about that, though, isn't
1: there? The, the, pro, the slow, mechanical, methodical process of doing stuff, and YouTube is full of people well, like I was going to boring
2: old, yeah. you know, things, and it's just it's, it's and just it's like, fantastic we'll watch it. watching as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. watch a lot of make amend vids on on YouTube, and I think maybe we. We weren't, we weren't ahead of the trend, but we were quite near the beginning. Yeah. And it's, I've often thought that we underestimate the value in TV of quite straightforward ideas, like people making things, mending things, cooking things, which has obviously become immensely popular because a lot of people in TV want to, want to add a sort of an unnecessarily dynamic element yeah. to everything and i'm not sure especially at the moment there's it, it might have had something to do with covid or it might have started before that i don't know but there's a there's a definite sort of groundswell of enthusiasm for what we would previously call nerdy activities yeah. which in, which includes to some extent cars and stuff around cars yeah, yeah. Um, it used to be something that you wouldn't speak of because it was sad, but now it's okay to hold your head up high and say, yeah, no, I made gliders out of wood and I'll mend furniture. The (laughs) things,
3: the two that I remember, they were so brilliant. I thought one was the track around Brooklands. Yes. And, but the, but the one I, I can't remember how it ended though, but I was just going to say it's the sense of mission to me. You know, you set out to fly a model airplane across the English channel,
2: Oh, yes, Flight Club. That was my favourite one. Did that actually... Did it make it? No, we ended up flying to the island of Lundy because we couldn't get permission. I can't remember... Well, you know how complicated aviation law is. But something to do with the size of our glider and flying it to France made it technically either a drone or a missile. I can't remember. (laughs) Was it altitude
3: too high or something?
2: It started too high, yes. So then we were going to fly it... Um, effectively across the Bristol Channel to Wales, which is a rough, you know, a similar yeah. journey that we could do. But then there was a problem with that, so we ended up flying it from um, Biddeford no Barnstable Way, out to the Isle of Lundy which was right. Almost yeah, almost that. exactly <clears throat> the same distance as the, as flying to the to the beach in Calais. Um, oh, I love the I love the whole enterprise. it, it, it is that sense of mission, you know,
3: because
2: I just remember all these people, you know, concerned people standing around. Well, that's, thinking the, about- that's the great thing about those toy things, It's like when we did Action Man at the Speed of Sound, if you take a step back, you think this is a totally stupid, pointless idea. But once you get into it, you and indeed everybody who comes into contact with it becomes totally obsessed yeah. with whatever you're trying to do. And I, I liked that, the, the premise of the toys thing, when I proposed the, the original six part series to the BBC, thinking they'd only choose one of them, we came up with six ideas, me and Plum, the production company I'd started working with. And that the premise was that as a child, you have boundless imagination, but you never have enough stuff. So you don't have enough Lego, you don't have enough Meccano. That's a good point, isn't it? or anything like that. And, and adults don't understand that you haven't got enough. When you become an adult, you, your imagination has been suppressed. Your sense of wonder has gone. But actually, your resources, with a bit of noodling, are are enormous. So you can have as much Lego as you want if you, you know, manage things correctly. So we tried to bring the two mindsets together: the sort of <laughs> brilliant adult, the sort of child's ambition and imagination, with an adult's resourcefulness. And that's so we ended up with three and a half million Lego bricks, and we could build a whole house. It was fantastic. <laughs> Presumably the folks from Lego thought it was Christmas, or Christmas twenty times over. Yeah, I think the people there's a strange relationship between Lego and Lego land, which I never quite got to the bottom of, but there's there's always something there are politics in toys, Uh. weirdly enough, but for example, Lego Lego were happy with us buying bricks, they did us deals on bricks, some people donated bricks and so on, but Lego Land were nervous, sorry, Lego Land were happy with that, Lego themselves were nervous about the idea that once we built the house, the market would be flooded with 3.5 million second-hand oh, Lego bricks. Yeah. Oh,
3: God, yeah. And
2: originally the house, oh, I think, them. was going to go to Legoland, but then they didn't want it. And I was absolutely convinced, well, it's okay because the Sasha Brothers will buy it for 20 million pounds and put it in the gallery. Oh, but weirdly, they didn't. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> and great. we had to knock it down. So yes. you've taken the residuals on Lego bricks took a massive hit. As a, as a well, result. what we did in the end, I think it kept everybody happy, was we knocked the house down, but all the bricks were donated to uh, effectively charitable enterprises, I think run by Legoland, that where Lego is used for therapy and for, you know, children's days out and things. So it wouldn't go onto the market, it would stay. And I don't really know where they all are now, those bricks, but they're, they're in that vault with they're the li- Ark of the Covenant, you know. And that,
1: <laughs> and so you mentioned earlier, which I, which I missed, is like Action Man at the Speed of
2: Sound. Yes, Action Man at the Speed of Sound, um, because I, d- I didn't really like Action Man as a toy when I was a kid, I didn't have one. Um I just thought it was it was like a dressing up doll, and then what you know it doesn't do anything um so we thought, well, it's about time he did um and could he go supersonic um which is basically an excuse to build a rocket, <laughs> and then we had um some rivals emerged he decided to send cindy sip <laughs> 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 <somebody. laughs> he did see so i mean it was very very silly but everybody became very very heavily invested in it yeah and sadly cindy was lost in space oh, you know, because they launched their rocket and she was never seen again so <laughs> our rocket had to become a sort of memorial rocket okay, <laughs> for our sad comrade it's that but, it, it's the
3: it's the, the thing that i'll never forget is the concerned people You know, all these
2: experts, all these brains,
3: furrowed brows.
2: I mean, we did use, we used a a company that we've used for quite a few things called Event Horizon. They do a lot of stuff for the military, top secret stuff, you know, testing ballistics and disposing of ordnance and so on. Um, But they also design a lot of systems and and bespoke one-off bits of engineering. And they do, you know, really, really top secret, high-level stuff. And we'd done a few things with them in the past where we'd needed explosives and so on. And we approached them and we said, Look, we want to build this rocket and send an action man, this stupid doll with the disjointed arms, <laughs> to Mach 1+. plus. And they went, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> and, and the next thing you know is that every, everything else, you know, all this important stuff has been pushed aside and there's this plastic doll on the desk and a man working out how big the, the, the rocket, rocket has, has to be. be. <laughs> it was great. It worked. Yep. Mach 1.04, which is almost exactly what Chuck Yeager did in the X-1 the first time. You love so, it, yeah. yeah. How, high, how high does he get doing that? Uh, it went. I think he went to about 14,000 feet. We had to have a NOTAM out, just that in case anybody was flying a Cessna 1.2. <laughs> the time.
1: That does sound like an enormous I mean, like all of... Most of the series you're involved in, so like an inordinate amount of paperwork to get that stuff done. There is a very simple idea, and then you think, hang on, who's going to
2: sign off the risk assessment? For this? There's, a, there's a lot of thick paperwork in, in TV, but we do have people to do that. I, I hate admin, and I'm not particularly good at it, I have to be honest. So, yes, yeah, someone, someone did that for us. But, uh, yeah, there is a lot of it, yeah. especially if you, I mean, with Toy Stories, if there's a lot of children involved, like there was at the Brooklyn's thing, you know, we had lots of kids helping out because they think that sort of thing's fantastic. But that's another level of paperwork because you have to make sure everybody who goes near them mm-hmm. is safe. Oh, yes, of
3: course, checked out or vetted. Everybody's got the to be words. vetted and checked
2: yeah. out. And then, obviously, you know, there are real cars and real vans being used for filming and so on. But there's all these kids wandering around and it's there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of precautions as there should be i mean sure don't want um you know my my life's only remaining ambition now is not to run over anybody i've decided (laughs) so and so far i'm doing okay no excellent (laughs) what's the what is the most fun program to make um well i i suppose it has to be top gear and then Grand tour simply because it Takes you to places that, sorry, that was my gut. Shall I start that sentence again? About it. New, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it takes me to places that I simply wouldn't go otherwise. You know, the middles of deserts, the North Pole, uh, obscure bits right out in the outback of Australia, mm. you know, all sorts of things like that. So that is stimulating and it uh, can be quite exhausting. I, I hesitate to say that because I don't, I don't want sympathy for it, obviously, that would be absurd. Um, but if I was appealing to the nerd side of me, I, I think it would be Toy Stories probably because it's it, it feels slightly illicit. I'm borrowing a bit of my twelve-year-old self back, but giving it a budget of many hundreds <laughs> of thousands of pounds to indulge it, and that's that's such a fabulous privilege. Yeah. You know, I, I
3: think it, I, in a way it's braver, you know, to me because you know the the, the notion of blokes doing <clears throat> amazing things with cars is, is, is you know, it's, when done well, it's wonderful, but, but to not everybody could make taking a clock to pieces stand up. That's the thing.
2: And, uh, and I, I reckon... Well, that- assuming I did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, that was, the, that was the series we were most nervous about, of all the things we've done. Slightly nervous about the cooking one, because that's a, a bit of a piss-taker, if we're honest. But the, the reassembler, we decided to do it uh, it was quite a small project. It was BBC4. But uh, it's never nice when your own shows come out on the telly. You, you, you're always sort of slightly nervous. I don't like watching myself on TV. It's like l- listening to your own voice on your answer machine. You know, mm-hmm. you just sort of think, yeah. oh, is that me? Ugh. But <gasps> when that one came out, I was actually hiding behind the sofa. I thought this this could go so horribly wrong. People could watch this and then just write the letter in that says, <laughs> what the fuck are you thinking about <laughs> with this bloke? <laughs> putting a whatever it was back together it together <laughs> food it, mixer is the <laughs>
1: cooking one a piss take
2: well it, yes it's a it's a piss take of cooking shows mm. i mean the the problem is well all cooking shows as far as i know and i've i've appeared as a guest on a few they all have the <clears> home <throat> economist which is a very uh, euphemistic term for the person who actually does all the cooking <laughs> there's always another kitchen behind the kitchen that's featured so, you know, somebody will say, you stir this and you fry this and then it's already been done and then they substitute that, you know, it's a, it's a whole string of, here's one I did earlier. Yeah. But that is covered up. You never see these domestic, uh, sorry, what are they call home economists. We don't know who they are. Um, so for our show, obviously because I can't really cook, I had one, she's called Nikki Morgan and the studio is her house, which is set up for filming the kitchen is arranged on an island so the cameras can be the right side, you know, because most houses you can't do that. You sure. can always have your back mm-hmm. to the camera. But then behind her kitchen is another kitchen, which is where she works and preps things and chops things and, and maybe produces the whole thing to slide in because you haven't got two hours to wait for a slow cook on TV. And it turns out her kitchen has a sort of a sub kitchen as well. <laughs> and there's Nikki has her own Nikki <laughs> working further there. But we put all that we put all that in the show. So, you know, so I acknowledge that Nikki is there and she's supposedly in this cupboard where I knock on the door and she's standing there. But actually that cupboard is another run. room at least as big as the one I'm already in. <laughs> we'll and we're up. just perfectly honest about it. So it, it is a bit of a piss take. But it's also, you know, we're doing very straightforward recipes um, that are designed for beginners and students. And it's one of the gratifying things about it. It is a bit like the reassembler in a way, in that there, there's, there are no frills. We say here on the ingredients, this is what you do. It is tools and materials, which is why I think cooking has become so popular. It's, you know, it's replaced woodwork and bicycle building. Yes, yeah. But um, one of the things that was most gratifying about that show, and it, it was another one that we were nervous about, is that I'm constantly meeting people who say, oh, my 12-year-old got your book and now does a really good lasagna. So, and I thought that's fantastic. If kids are, are, are finding, you yeah. know, something as square yeah. as cooking, interesting and having a go at it, then you, you know, that was worthwhile. <clears throat> yeah, that was, it was brilliant, yeah. Yeah.
3: Just um, yeah, talking about the, go back to the, the things that you're really well known for, like the, you know, one of the three as it were. Tell us about, people always speculate on the relationship between you and the other two. And, uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, James May, um, he, he does this because, you know, it's a great gig, but, but actually he finds him a pain in the ass. You know, what what? How, tell, tell us about your relationship with these fellas.
2: Well, it's uh, public perception goes all the way from we all live together in a big house with a load of cars outside. Um, like Morecambe and Wise. Um, yeah, a little bit like Morecambe and Wise, all the young ones, but yeah. with more cars, yeah. Um, all the way to, uh, oh, they can't stand each other and the whole thing is fueled by mutual loathing, which is, <laughs> which is something we do play on a bit because it's quite a nice idea. But the, the reality is, I've said this many times before, I think if we were all at school together, we're not the same age, so this is very hypothetical, but if we were, I don't think we'd have been in the same gangs. We'd have been in different ones. So I don't think we'd have been mates. But I think it, it, uh, as a tv threesome the fact that we're slightly at loggerheads with each other is is what makes it work you can't you know it's like the old adage in business about people in a room agreeing and you know all but one of them is redundant yes um it's a bit like that so i'd say we're not we're not bosom buddies in reality ultimately we are work colleagues yeah like all but the thing that the thing
3: that strikes me even so is that is that could be wrong about this, but but you you tend to find one another funny, you know. You you know when, yeah, you you do have dovetailing of humor. I would say.
2: Yes, I think we do find each other funny, not necessarily for um, <laughs> classic <laughs> comedy reasons. Oh, it's, okay. uh, it's it's often frustration. I mean, I, I find Jeremy Clarkson funny. I mean, he can be, he's a funny man, obviously. He does good jokes and things. But I also find him funny because he's so incredibly incapable in certain aspects of his life that I despair. <laughs> but then I move beyond despair to just finding it hilarious that he can't keep a bonfire going. You know, he once... We were staying in a very cold place um, down in South America uh, on the edge of a lake, and it was effectively a... Um, a bit more than a bothy but the equivalent of the sort of place where walkers shelter and it had a wood-burning stove and Jeremy elected to have the room with the wood-burning stove in it so me and Hammond got it going you know and a few crew members were with us and I said to him if you're in this room with the fire you've got to keep it going so you might have to get up every three hours or so and put a couple of logs on or give it a poke. So we all went to bed in these other little rooms and I woke up at about 4am with my bollocks literally in an ice cube and I thought it's chuffing cold in here and I went next door and of course the fire was out and Jeremy was only oh it was too complicated. <laughs> a fire is what civilised us and you have actually let civilization go out. You have effectively destroyed humanity in that act and I considered beating him to death with a shovel but then I didn't.
3: Yeah I see what you mean. God.
1: Uh, we'll take a very quick uh advertising break and as soon as we come back we will talk with james mason more uh, about cars hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're
0: looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Welcome back to My Week in Cars with me, Steve Croppley and James May. And I think, uh, James, we might talk some cars in a minute. Is that all right? Mm, okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, well, you've I just written a Aeroplanes? Yeah, most of oh, aeroplanes aeroplane. I can do. No, but car, do cars. You are we a car. We do cars. So, yeah, yes, sure. I mean,
1: yeah, we are a car. That it's um, time I thought and you about the series. <laughs>
2: Actually, the Car Bollocks book is not all about cars, I understand. Uh, it's mainly about cars. There are a few bits about bicycles, there's a little bit about aviation, and there's some rambling. Mm. I've, always, I've always thought that... I mean, I, I, I love cars, obviously, they're fantastic, and I, I've been interested in them since I was a kid, but... The the really great thing I discovered about motoring journalism is that cars are great fun to write about because actually they mean you can write about anything because they're they're so interwoven with everything else about humanity, society, politics, aspiration, you know, all these things that you can start from the position of cars, reviewing cars, driving cars on an adventure and actually stray off into religion or philosophy, anything. And that's what was good about it, I think. So quite a lot of the stuff I wrote about cars wasn't necessarily that heavily about cars. It was, as I like to say, Mm. car-themed. But I don't think that would have been true if I'd been writing about, and maybe it would be true if you were writing about football, you know, sports, um, or maybe travel. But if you were, I think it might be difficult if you are writing about the history of art. Yes, sure. For example. Yeah.
3: Ah, that's very interesting.
2: Do you read much car stuff? Yes, um, although not as much as I used to. But I do. I do read car, stu- car stuff. The thing I I find now is it's very difficult. It's really difficult to stay in touch if you're not working right in the in the heartland of it. Which for the best one in the world. TV isn't. Journalism is still that. Um, and I had a discussion the other day with a, with a mate. Now, this is, this is a game we used to play a lot in the olden days, and you still see it coming up on social media is, you know, you can choose one car for the rest of your life and it must do everything and you can never change it. You know, we used to do that in the office all the time and have a big argument about it. But I found myself the other day, uh, and this is because of age, let's not kid ourselves, thinking it might be time to just have yeah. one car. And then I started seriously thinking, what would it be? Mm. And it actually would be something fairly mundane because it, it's it's time.
3: Yeah, you need the breadth of, breadth of capability too, don't you? If you the more fairly,
2: yes. Although the
3: more specialised they are, the less you use them, perhaps. Definitely,
2: yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think I drive that much. I. I I drive regularly between London and our little cottage, which is down in South Wiltshire. That's about a hundred miles and a nice journey, actually. So I enjoy <clears> driving it. Um, I've never been any good at just driving a car for the sake of it. If somebody says, oh, go and have a go in this this 911, I'd set off, you know, let's so say I was doing that from London. I'd said I'd go down the A40 for a bit and then I'd turn around and go back because I can't think where to go if I yeah. don't have an objective, I need,
3: Oh, a sense of destination. It, yeah. it, it does everything, that, doesn't it?
2: It needs a purpose. Especially for,
3: for the motorcyclist and the aeroplane. Yes. You oh, still fly, that, don't
2: you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing quite a bit of it recently. Um,
3: do you still, Do you mind saying what aeroplane you, you fly?
2: No, I have a... Well, there's another story there. So hmm. I had an American champion scout, which is like a Citabria or a decathlon. Right. Basically I in a associated champ. you with a decathlon. Yeah. yeah, I did have a decathlon previously. Oh, okay. Then I had uh, a Cessna One Eight Five, which I bent. That's right, um, I remember it. Yeah. And then I got the the scout. The scout's quite a tricky aeroplane. It's got big tundra tires. It's a tail dragger, obviously, and it's you know it's it's tricky. It's not a. It's one of those fly all the time aeroplanes. Yeah. And I have to revalidate my license because I'd let it lapse a bit for a few years while I was away too much. And uh, the guy who's been re- reteaching me, he said, "Look, that that aeroplane's not really suitable. Why don't you why don't you get something?" a bit more mainstream and a bit more practical so I said oh okay and I bought a Robin DR 500 which is the president version of the regular 400 Robin yeah that's engine. what I
3: learned to fly in a 400
2: yes well it's that with a slightly fatter fuselage mm. and a slightly bigger yeah, nice. it's lovely and pretty easy to fly and very well very equipped easy. but I didn't sell the scout <laughs> so I've still got it yeah, because I'm, the thing is it's a really funky aeroplane and I love it I love just looking at it. It's yellow with blue stripes on. It. It's got big fat wheels. It looks like a cartoon. So I was supposed to sell it, and I probably will, but I haven't. So what I'm admitting to is having two aeroplanes. <laughs> is that's, that, that um, that's bad, isn't it? Is <laughs>
1: that is a is a scout? I'm not. I'm, I don't know much about this, but what I see sometimes, people are doing very short takeoffs and yes. landings into things, like, amazingly short. On uh, the, it will Canadian riverside and stuff. Things like that. Yeah. yeah, yes, exactly. That sounds like great things.
2: That. Yes, I haven't done very much of that. I've done a bit of flying it into farm strips and things, and it's it it is good, but it is also the sort of thing that you can. Well, you know this, Steve. You can cock it up. That's the thing about aviation compared with say boats boats, you can sort of stop and have a bit of a bob about and everything happens very slowly. Mm. Um, in aviation, even with light aircraft, which are relatively slow, the aeroplane can, as they say, get ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can be in all sorts of trouble. So um, you need to take it seriously. Do you want
1: a destination in mind when you fly as well as drive and ride or whatever? Actually,
2: weirdly, not so much because um, I'm quite happy with the aeroplane, it's now. It used to be at White Waltham. It's now down at, at Compton Abbas um, in Dorset, very close to where our little cottage is. It's, it's a hilltop airfield. It's it's all quite twee. Oh, I know. Um, I've been um, flown in there a few times. Yeah, you'll know about it. It's always got a crosswind. Yeah, it?
3: So, <clears throat> but that plateau thing's great. You yeah, know, fantastic. You lift yeah.
2: fifty feet, then suddenly you're five hundred feet off the floor. Yeah. So I'm quite happy because it's very scenic around there. I am quite happy to fly around looking out of the window. That's what I really want from aviation. I don't. I don't want to learn aerobatics or anything. I don't want yeah. to. I don't want to fly to Australia. I think that would be a bit too challenging. But biffing around at a couple of thousand feet, looking down to see who's got a swimming pool or whatever. Oh, and, it's the view, isn't it? it, yeah, is, the view. it is the view. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could and, and and the sort of procedural stuff. I you know I like it's a bit like handling a shotgun in a way, it's potentially dangerous, but there's satisfaction from knowing that you're doing it properly, properly. and yeah. responsibly. Sure. And uh, even though I once didn't do it quite responsibly and badly bent one, but... Um, still, you're still here. I'm still here, yeah. It's, Tell us about the motorbikes. Not, <laughs> you, the,
3: I ran into you one stage at, I think it was uh, a, a the, the, the sort of premier motorcycle auction, and you were selling a bunch of bikes.
2: Because oh, that do was
3: you in Stafford. refresh
2: Stafford. Yes, yeah, Stafford. That was it. Yeah. Well, I um, to be honest, I, I wrote an article for Bike a year or two back about this because they knew what had happened, and I, I I was sort of like a drug addict, fessing up and saying I had a problem because I got into the habit of Richard Hammond did the same thing and still does to some extent, you know, buying them, selling a few, buying a few more, ending up with sort of thirty plus bikes. And after a while, I thought, no, this is ridiculous, because I don't ride that much. I'm not even particularly good at riding bikes, because I'm probably too cautious. Mm. Now I'm getting on a bit. Um, so I did sell a load, and I've sold a load more since. And to be honest, I feel my motorcycling days are numbered, apart from possibly my, my scooter and my little Honda 125 Grom, uh, which, okay. is, which is a sort of toy motorcycle. Matt's um,
3: some an Africa twin man.
1: Oh, yeah. But and only so that is yeah. Nice. And I don't. It is lovely, but I don't. Mm. I, it's funny. I don't feel the same way as I do about cars. and that, I look at cars and uh, hovering on classifieds
2: all the time. But I'm never doing it with bikes. I have one that I'm very happy. So you actually have a bike as a device, then? Yeah, a, yeah. I did uh,
1: seven thousand miles last is year really? on it, and it's and only through the summer. I don't ride in this kind of conditions because oh, no, I hate appalling. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. In the summer, I'll use it a lot. Go to the airport on it. and... Because you can park next to the terminal for nothing. And yeah, yeah. I oh, used oh, to really do a lot thing. of that yeah. in the yeah. old it's days. Been, yeah. absolutely fab for that. Oh, my old, yeah.
2: my old Goody California. I used to ride it to Heathrow, and there was a place near Terminal Four, I think, where we went a lot. Where there's a, there's a. I think it's a staff car park thing that's sort of under the flyover, uh, leading into yep. departures. Mm. And this tatty old Goody I had, I could. It didn't even have a side stand because it had fallen off. I'd turn up on that <laughs> and simply. Lean it against the wall on its crash bars, and then just walk straight through the door into the terminal. Yeah. It was Beautiful. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. and that, yeah. that was a total <clears throat> user's. Yeah, best, it's, still a, it's still a, it's still a, it's still the easiest way to beat the system. Yeah, th- thing isn't no, it? You don't right? have to worry about the M25
1: when you get off again. You know, that's the, thing, yeah, that's the thing. It's yeah, I find, so, yeah, I like that as a as a as a tool. But yeah, so you down from thirty bikes to, to
2: yeah, I've got, well, I've still got seven or eight mm. there's a few that I, i've got things like um a honda c70 Cub that i restored fabulous i mean potentially for sarah my other half but then she didn't really learn to ride it and i realized that i didn't particularly wanted to because she's not not of a motorcycling mindset mm. shall we say i've also got a very old c100 ie a 50 cc cub a 60s one early version with the push rod engine before the you know <laughs> um and, a, and a, 90, a c200 which is a 90cc little ride to work honda and they're just they're fiddling bikes yeah. that's the thing i discovered about old bikes is they're great fun to mend they're, they're lovely to tinker with especially the small ones because you know you can get them up on a table and take them apart quite easily but I don't, I don't particularly want to ride hundreds of miles on them. No. They're, they're they're novelty items
3: what about cars you take them to pieces
2: no I have done a bit in the past and I've built a few caterings and so on, but I find cars, um, a bit too awkward to work on and it takes up too much space. Mm. It's, it's, it's much easier to just um, take a clock apart or yeah, yeah. You know, a toy train.
3: Give us a few highlights of the garage. Now, uh,
2: the garage now has in it, um, not a Fiat Panda cause that's actually Sarah's, but me, I have a 911, which I bought new in, 2010. So that's a bit of a classic car now. I've still got the 458 Speciale, uh, the Alpine A110, um, a beach buggy. Which Which one? Uh, what beach buggy? Manx. Yeah. It is effectively a Manx, but it's a, it's a new build one. It's the one we had in the special on grand tour when we went to Namibia and I brought the, let's be honest, wreckage home (laughs) and the people who built it originally simply rebuilt it with a new body shell. But so I've got that in the garage. Down in the sticks, and then I have a <clears throat> Tesla Model S and a Toyota Mirai hydrogen car. Yeah,
3: I was interested to talk about this stuff
2: because you're oh, and a Land Rover. I forgot the Land Rover. Which one? I've got a Freelander that was my dad's. We did a swap. There's a bit of a story about that, but we can do that later if you want. No, don't do it. Well, so dad, dad had this Freelander. They used to live down in Devon. Um, it has this Freelander. It's from 2000. And it's about ten. 10 or 12 years old, uh, which he looked after extremely well, which he always does with cars, and it hasn't done a massive mileage, about 38,000. But then they moved up to uh, Cobham, sort of just inside the M25, and of course the Land Rover doesn't quite pass the uh, ULES oh, no, stuff. And he was saying to me, he said, Oh, I think I should have an electric car, and you know, what, what do you think I should do? And I said, Well, look, I've, I still have my BMW i3 then. And I said, Look, I'll tell you what, the I've got the i3 and I've also got the tester, so I don't absolutely need it, much as I like it. But I could occasionally use your Freelander in the countryside to go across our field and collect the logs and you know all that boring countryside stuff. So I said, "I'll do you a swap." And he said, "Oh, okay." So I, you know, did all the paperwork, drove down in my i3. The i3 was worth two to two and a half times as much as the land. <laughs> yeah, but you're but doing he, him a favour. But he's my dad. Yeah, so. <laughs> I said, Here well, you are, here's, and I showed him how to use it, and I went off in the Freelander. And then halfway down to Wiltshire, I remembered that i bought him the Freelander originally. <laughs> so it was actually the worst deal I've ever done. He didn't remind you then? No, well, I think he'd probably forgot. It doesn't matter, he's my no, dad. You know, you know, no, of no, course. Interesting. Um, yeah. Sorry, but you were going to have to say that. Well, I am interested
3: in your, you know. Uh, oh, the looking, hydrogen. Looking forward, hydrogen. you know, because. You know, I wonder where you are with electric cars and where you are the hydrogen thing I thought was a particular sort of investment of your i don't know your faith i suppose
2: well, yes, I was trying to i mean I, obviously I can do this because i'm in a in a fortunate position, but I thought electric cars are interesting I'm happy to take part in the experiment, and I think in a way, if you're a car enthusiast and you can afford to, you should because it's the job of people who can afford to try new tech to tested out on behalf of couldn't agree of the more world. i think
3: that's so true
2: yeah and it's, it was true of laptops digital cameras bicycles once cars in themselves you know 100 years ago yeah. so so i got the tesla and the mirai um at keeping an open mind about it i i, I find the hydrogen idea very alluring because I'm aware of all the problems of transporting it, storing it, the pressures, the temperatures and so on, but the idea that you can simply fill it up is fantastic. But since then, of course, most of the hydrogen stations have closed and we're now on this side of London, we're reduced to two, one of which is pretty unreliable. So that car, which is quite an expensive car, has become a bit journey specific, yeah. Which is a shame. It's a lovely car. I don't know if you've driven the new Mirai. It's we ran
3: not the new one. We mm. we ran one as a long I, term yes, for six remember. months. Yeah, and um, that was in the days when you could fill up at the National Physical Laboratories. Maybe you still can. You, ca- there. you
2: still can there, yes. But you, but Cobham has gone. Um, Swindon has gone. Beaconsfield has gone. Uh, I think Raynham is about to go over the other side of London. The sure. only two places I can really use now are Heathrow and the National Physical AMPL, Laboratory.
3: Yeah. Well, the great thing about ANPL was that it was up the road from where we were. Yeah. It's not far from here in fact, Twickenham where we are now.
2: Yeah, it's a very civilized place to go as well. You get your little fog to go in the gate yeah, lovely. Out. Yeah, lovely. Beautiful. Do you feel differently about
1: battery electric cars to hydrogen cars in its, it does it something gets me that the the Freedom, I love from a car is you can go, and I'm going to go to work. That's fine. I'm going to turn left onto the M40 and go to the office. But if I wanted to, I could go right and I could go to Inverness, yes, in a heartbeat,
2: and that's all. And I could not. Or you could go to Greece, or I go to Greece, yeah. wherever yeah. the hell I want to. But I think the battery electric cars is I like the idea of electric motoring. I enjoy it. We've known, uh, you know, since the Baker electrics that electric motors make sense in cars. Mm. It's much easier, you know. It's 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 from an engineering viewpoint, it is less offensive. There's none of that reciprocating stuff and noise and heat and so on. But electricity has always been a problem. And I think the where we've got to with the electric car is that their efficacy is being slightly exaggerated by the sort of people who have them. Mm. It's still, I, I, the evangelists would hate me for saying it, and they they are very good at ranting on social media, but there are a lot of statistics that can be mash to show that the battery electric car works. And if you can charge at home, you know, you've got off-street parking or a garage, which I have, because I'm lucky. Yes, it does work. And I don't drive huge distances. Once we're gonna have to have electric cars in towns and cities where people live in terrace houses and and apartments and so on. I mean, my London house doesn't have a garage for parking an electric car in. What are we going to do? What it comes down to is the battery technology isn't really good enough despite what we're telling ourselves. The ideal electric car, I think, would have um, a relatively short range and a small battery, which would be lighter and cheaper and use fewer materials and so on, require less mining, but would recharge in three or four minutes. But the, you know people argue that, oh, well, you can put your car on the charger and it takes half an hour, but by the time you've been for a wee and had a cup of coffee, it's, done it. it's just not true. It takes, and I time it regularly because I'm sad, filling up a petrol car, even my 911, which has a famously big tank, it can't take more than four minutes, Mm. including going in and paying and having a pee. Yeah. So uh, I don't, I can't work out what i can't work out how the infrastructure is going to work there's all these different companies that have their app for their charging stations and and they're difficult to find i mean petrol stations have great big lights and they're by the side of the road and they're like sort of reverse lighthouses you are drawn towards them they're very easy to find charging points are bloody difficult to spot even when you're 10 yards away from them. That's it. And then you have to have the right app and then you have to make sure no one else is there and you don't know if anyone else is there. And there's never any there. weather protection, is there? There's for your no. four minutes,
3: there's always a bloody great veranda. Exactly. For your, for your half hour, you're in, the, you're in the elements, aren't you?
2: Yeah. I, did a, I did a calculation, and this is not scientific, um, but I read somewhere. So the number of petrol stations in Britain has declined quite dramatically over the last 20, 30 years and the number of charging points has gone up. I think the latest government figure said it was something like 38,000 charging points in Britain, and yeah, I think that's there it, was something like... 30,000
3: plus, was it for sure.
2: Not, in, how many petrol stations? 9,000, is it? Something like yeah. that? Yeah. And they say, oh, well, there's more charging points than petrol stations, but each petrol station can have up to 20 pumps, Yeah. and people are occupying the I pumps for, for three or four, or four minutes. minutes. Yeah. yeah, so, but I did a calculation, I thought, okay, the we sell uh, in Britain between sort of 1.8 and two and a half million new cars per year, depending on what the economy is doing. You know. Um, but it, you know, it, it, it follows that within a decade of the petrol car ban, probably about 75 to 80% of the car fleet will have been replaced, which means they must be replaced by electric cars. And I worked out that we needed several tens of millions of charges for it to work, not, not, a few tens of thousands. Yeah, it's
3: crazy. the The official figure that we keep being fed is thirty thousand plus chargers now. Three hundred thousand needed by the by the late twenties. Mm. So we need a co- just just if that conservative figure is correct, we need two hundred and seventy thousand more between now and twenty twenty seven.
2: I think it's probably more, more. than that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. I
1: sort of struck that. You know, if you come to work and you park your car at work, you'll probably want to be able to hook up. And work for the day, and yes, you, you can fast charge in places, but you know most of us will slow charge. If you you just want to, I think that a lot of people will charge, will plug in quite often, and that's yeah.
3: I uh, keep that's... wondering when the when the moment will come when, you know, at the moment this is theory. We all sit around like this, you know, talking about it, but there's going to be a moment when suddenly it's going to impact on people trying to deliver their kids to school, and it's you know there's mm. there's going to be a moment when it, well there's going to be an era. Three or four years hence when it starts to get difficult
2: very difficult and especially if things like you know emergency services and delivery companies have to go electric it's 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 a problem i think we're slightly kidding ourselves yeah and the ruling was brought in by a government who isn't going to be around to deal with it obviously like all these things yeah so, yeah um it's i mean I'm, I'm really fascinated to see what happens And as I said, I I like being part of the experiment, but I'm not blind to the problems. I had to go the other day, um, we had a weekend event we were going to in Albra. So, and we had to go via some friends of Sarah's. So I can't remember what the total journey distance was, but it was slightly more than than the full charge of my Tesla Model S, which is one of the longest range electric cars you can currently buy. It's that and the Mercedes, the big G Mercedes so i thought well that's okay because we can get there but i can find a charging point there will be one somewhere and i used a zap map because it was admin again you have to look at zap map and look at yes there are one or two in albera but not very many but i could park it there but well, it might be somebody on it when I get there. With the Tesla, it was a big battery, you're going to need to stick it on there for quite a while. Yeah. And then I'm going to have to park it down the road from where we're staying and then presumably go and move it because otherwise there'll be fees. for And I just thought, I can't be asked i go in the 911. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you are.
2: What do you drive most? Well, actually, I drive the Tesla most, I would say. Um, things like the Ferrari, I drive very rarely because it's a special occasion car. And I'm sort of slightly... I, don't know, I know this is pathetic, but I'm slightly scared of you. Seeing it. yeah, <laughs> Do you feel conspicuous in it? Oh yes. Yeah. It's orange with gold. Says it all. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. I mean, cars. Okay, when I when I was first working with you lots back in the early '90s, that, and indeed when we first started doing Top Gear, car enthusiasm was a fairly innocent thing, and and the car was, I mean, not entirely innocent, of course, but relatively. It, it's under such scrutiny now, that you, you think more carefully about what you do with it. And in some ways, I think this is a very good thing. And I, I do get annoyed with people who, who drive badly, especially around town and, you know, ostentatiously and dangerously, because I think the, what you're doing, the thing that you love is, is being examined minutely by a lot of people who would want to kill it. And if you don't do it responsibly, and in an intelligent way, it will be taken away from you. You'll it. contribute mm. to the demise, actually. Yeah, it's like having a pen knife at school and misusing it. It gets taken <laughs> away from you. And it's not the man who will do it, it's public opinion. Yes, sure. So, So I am I am slightly conscious. I would never bring the Ferrari into London. It lives down in the sticks.
3: But presumably um, some of your, I mean, people see you in the car, do they? They know who you are, they see you on the box. That must contribute to your feeling of cons- conspicuity, is it, or? Well,
2: Yes, possibly. I, I wonder, am I just being a massive arse here <laughs> driving around in an orange Ferrari? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe I should accept that I've got it out of my system and and move on. So what? back to so back to my one car for life. Then. Oh yes, go on. So I, I can't help thinking, and this might just be because I feel I've, I've done it now and I've scratched that itch, it's something fairly mundane. I often think it's a BMW 320i Which is a very polite in dark blue you know Mm. it's a nice car you know or it could be a tesla model 3 because i I do think it's an impressive thing and the performance is spectacular amazing yeah (laughs) and silent and stealthy and it's you know it's quite sinister in a way
3: and they're 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 still a bit special those to me i've been thinking about those myself very interesting
2: it is interesting what, but what, I still think I'd want to have another car. You know, this is yeah. the problem with electric cars. Well, I mean, you two the...
3: two would be a, a just tremendous restraint, wouldn't it? For, you know, for you. Well,
2: I suppose yes, based on past form. <laughs> yeah, but it, it still feels a little bit.
3: Is there anything that you would like and haven't got? I mean, don't uh, don't don't bugger up the market by <laughs> <laughs> talking about it. <laughs>
2: uh,
3: oh. No, I don't. I don't. Well, I've you just buy them as they occur to you. By the sound of things, to to judge by the Mirai and the and the Tesla.
2: Yes. Uh, it's, well. Take the Alpine. I, when I drove that, I was I was slightly annoyed with them for making it a retro car, because um, I thought that wasn't really necessary. You don't need to appeal to old farts. You need to make a really nice, effectively pint-sized supercar, which is what it is. It's a it's a it's a shrunken supercar. Um, and you could have made it modern but never mind i, I liked it so much and the way it drove and the, and the philosophy behind it of you know lightness and compactness and so on i thought well i'll have one of those and for that reason you know i still keep looking at lotus i'm watching harry metcalfe's video of yeah. him buying his lotus and i think that actually looks like an appealing car because it's it's intelligently thought out yeah like i get i get fed up with bulk in cars. I, I, I still can't, I know I've got the Freelander, but sort of 4x4 four four SUV mentality just really baffles me. I might just be being an old fart, but mm. I can't say. Well, the Freelander is pretty
3: compact in that In that. I suppose it is by family. modern standards. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: But I, I like, I, I like, I like small cars, actually. Yeah. And I like the immediacy of the responses of those things. And, you know, in operation, Something like a Fiat Panda. I always used to really like the Suzuki so yep. What's it called? The San- Celerio, Yeah. That's so, it. Yeah. Fiat. We had a
3: wonderful <laughs> moment with those. and do you remember the brake pedal bust? Oh yes. Oh yeah. 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 That
2: was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. And terrifying. Actually.
3: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you wrote, Matt. You wrote uh, very sort of beguilingly, I thought, about the i10. The you and like the i10. yeah. yeah, yeah I really like, like the i10. Three point two in long.
1: production. I think, and it's just it's all the car. I'm it's very a, happy. It was the car I got landed with the day before lockdown started I had a Ford Ranger Raptor outside my house and I thought, Well this is good for the impending apocalypse and somebody came along and picked it up and delivered high on I-, I ten in its place. <laughs> and it was terrific. And I used to mm. take my daughter to work in Banbury, which is about fifteen miles, to the supermarket on a Sunday morning. Having a great time there and back. This is this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah I finally mean, we, freedom again.
2: Yeah we had one when it when it came out which must have been that's a while back now, isn't it? So it must have been the that have been back in the top gear era. What was it? No, it must have been more recent than that. When it first came out? Yeah. Oh, yes, it would have been Fermi. I think about 20... Ooh, uh, it was
1: early-ish in my time here, so, yes. Yeah, my son has got a
3: got a one, that, the scrappage one. You mm. know, The remember those red ones yeah. that, yeah, that was Mark like, once? And he's O8, still done 150. Yeah. Yeah. It was wow. perfect. He brought back from the MOT bloke the other day who said, there's a bulb out. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently no other problems, you know, yeah. just...
2: No, they're nice. The IEO, as we used to call it the, it, the i10. I also liked the Kia Picanto. Yeah, I thought that was quite a fun car. Um, a mate of mine bought one of those. Um, what other little stuff have I really enjoyed? Bear you with the, the up. Yeah, I like, I like the like up. It. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's something that it runs a bit of a theme through your story, doesn't it? You know, because the, the panda is not. Well, I know you're just here because it's the wife's car today, but it, that sort of car does seem to appeal to you, doesn't it? I've you it does.
2: Before. It's. I. 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 mean, I was when we did our Italy travel show uh, last year. You know, people were saying, "Well, you need a car for the whole thing. You're going to do the whole length and breadth of Italy." And then people were saying, "Oh, what, are you going to get a Maserati? Are you going?" To? And I said, "No, it needs to be. It needs to be a proper humdrum Italian car." And they were saying, "Oh, well, have a Cinquecento." And I said, "No, it's got to be a Panda because it's just." it's the default, it's the NHS car of Italy, if you like, you know, yeah. it's the one you get by default. So I had the, the hybrid one um, and it, it's, it's pretty gutless, but, you know, we drove it for thousands of miles and I was thinking if I, you know, if all my cars disappeared and I just thought, oh, I need to go and get a car in the way you need to go and get some milk or some bread, I'd probably come home with something like a Panda yeah. hybrid or, or an i10. I, oh. I would. I I don't think I'd go any further than that if oh, the slate were wiped clean.
3: Funnily enough, an hour ago we were we were having a chat about putting quite a lot of these little cars together, you know. And the heading there was the sort of heading in our on the story in our heads was cars you can buy on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. You know, and you, you just go down there, sign on the chip, ninety quid for a PCP, and, and yeah, it is quite home easy you to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um we I suppose the uh, the the thing that lingers on my list of things to ask you mm-hmm. is the future. You know, what um is presumably there's stuff left in the series that, you know, the big series. Yes. Excuse me. <laughs> um but I mean what about some more James May on his own type stuff?
2: Well, we've got I I think <laughs> there's always a few hurdles left with these things. I think we're doing another travel show, hopefully Fairly early next year, we've got some more grand tours to do.
3: Where will where will the travel show be? Can you say?
2: Um, I can say that it will probably be either India or South America.
3: You wouldn't do. I was thinking of you in the USA.
2: Uh we do have a USA one sketched out, which we were going to do a few years ago, but COVID got in the wet. Well, combination of COVID protocols, the retreat from Afghanistan made the visas problematic, and that's why we ended up in Italy. Because it was the pretty much the only place we could gotcha. we could yeah. go, um, but I would quite like to do that. Yeah, I think it would be great fun. They might let us do a bit more cooking, and we might be able to maybe expand on the idea of that. I've I've got one or two ideas about shows I'd like to do about slightly more serious things like energy. Yeah, um, but also I have to accept that you know, I've had a fantastically long run at it for something that we thought might last a few years, and. I'll be 60 next month and, you know, sooner or later, I'm going to have to bow out.
3: Yeah, but I think there are plenty of things that it seems to me that there's an, in, there's, if anything, there's an increasing gamut of things that can, can do with this sort of um, intelligent layman explanation approach that you take. And it, it just seems people, more people enjoy that than, than the learned stuff.
2: Yeah, maybe I, choosing the is is the important thing. And I, I really believe that, I mean, this is true of writing as well. And it's definitely true of TV. You should never try and present something that you're not genuinely into. Mm. So, because you can tell, mm. um, and you will just do a better job if you're, if you're talking about something that really enthuses you and TV, even if you're busting it, like we do with a lot of my stuff, it only ever really exists as bullet points, um, you know, rather than scripts, but, it, it, it is, first and foremost, a writing job. Yeah. That's why journalists tend to make the best TV presenters. It's a writing job, and then it's turned into TV. But it's still ultimately about the words, and the words come first.
3: Yeah, interesting.
2: Perhaps, um, finally, do you recommend owning a pub?
1: No. <laughs> terrible idea is it is it I mean <laughs> presumably the last few years have been pretty pretty hard going yeah, absolutely hopeless I mean it's
2: a lovely it's a lovely warm thought because mm. I think a lot of people secretly like the idea of owning a pub but what you mustn't do is believe you can run a pub because it's actually extremely difficult and extremely hard work so me I, I actually own half of it I have a business partner who, who uh, bought the other half but that was to save it from redevelopment for the second time and it's in recent 10 uh, ten-year history. So...
3: Here is a shock revelation. I went there.
2: Oh, did you like it?
3: I did. Yeah, oh. it was... It was. Um, we were staying in a place called... Or just near this this other pub called the Beckford Arms, and they oh, said... Yes. Down the way, you know, we got a bit sick of eating in the same place, so they said, you know, turn left, go down there. James oh, and They actually
2: re- recommended us. That's nice of them, because they're our big rival. Oh, they, well, they... They stole our chef.
3: Oh, no,
2: did yeah, they? Yeah. Oh, my word. It's like bloody Germans bombed our chip shop. You know, <laughs> sort of well,
3: I, we had a good time, me and the business, and and uh, and, and uh, the only thing is we found the parking a bit difficult.
2: Yeah, well, the car park isn't big enough, and there's no way around that. We have nowhere to expand apart from into our own beer garden, which would be unfortunate. Oh, you can't do that, no. No. Um, and, of course, it's a country pub, so people don't apart from people in, in the immediate village, people don't walk there. People people drive to pubs in the countryside. Yeah, so yeah. I don't really yeah. you know what we're gonna do. But it's it doesn't it's never made any money and I wasn't expecting it to. It, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a vanity thing. Um, and it may be quite popular because people said, Oh well done, you've saved the pub whilst they then, you know, get a delivery and a five <laughs> pack of cheap supermarket lager. Um, <laughs> But it's, uh, you know, we, we straight away put a manager in a very experienced one and we've got a great chef and you know, we've got lovely young staff who are cheerful and upbeat and smiley and you know, they're all, they're all great, it's nice. But it's bloody hard work, especially at the moment, the costs obviously have rocketed like they have for everybody, the ingredient prices have gone up, the insurance is something like trebled, it's, it's and pubs in the end, they don't turn over massive amounts of money no, you look at them and you think. I mean, ours is a sort of a bit of a posh pub, and the and the food is is definitely not cheap. I mean, it's not ludicrous, but you know, you can spend a few bob if you go out there sure. for a big lunch, as you will have discovered, I'm <laughs> sure. Oh, we had a good time. But um, you know, you get fifty people through of an evening and, and so on, and at the end of the day, you might think, oh, we've taken we've taken four and a half thousand pounds, which sounds great, but there's a lot of costs associated sure. with it. Yeah, and. By the time you've paid everything off and done a bit of maintenance, because it's an old building and, you know, the paint flakes off the walls and the thatch falls to bits and potholes appear in the car park, by the time you've sorted all that out, there's really no left.
3: So, television.
2: Television is... Yes. Television is easier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what so are we see, you talking? <laughs> what do we see you in next, James? Uh, the next thing you will see me in is the... Oh, uh, it'll be the next... Grand tour, the one we've already filmed, mm-hmm. um, but we've managed to keep very secret. Oh, but well I don't think spotted us. Well, people spotted us, but they haven't blabbed too much. Mm. So that, I'm not quite sure when that's coming out because they haven't decided. It will probably be early New Year, I'm guessing. Fantastic. Could be Feb. Super. Don't know. Well, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. It's very kind no, of you to come in. No, it's been very nice talking to you. Thank uh, you for not asking me any really difficult car questions. That's what I was most worried about.
3: <laughs> oh, you were, you were thinking we were going to ask you a compression ratio over Hillman Minks or something? <laughs>
2: well, all, all the prices of things. Oh, we
3: don't know talk me about either,
1: this all about about the time that you can't identify half of a Mercedes model range anyway. No, so I no know, chance. So don't worry about that. You're fine. However, Steve Cropley and I will be back this time next week with uh, My Week in Cars where we will be talking about. Uh, trying to identify most of the Mercedes range. Um, until then, you can find us at autocar.co.uk over on the YouTube. Uh, the magazine is available digitally and of course, in print, as it has been every week since 1895.
0: Cheerio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.